0: Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that's Kebmo, Kebmo, wake up everybody, wake up everybody. (laughs) Um, Today we are going to be playing uh, something from the archive. Just trying to figure out what, (laughs) what to play from the archive. Um, So it's going to be a surprise. I was thinking about playing um, uh, an interview with uh, the director of uh, the film, um, about Nina Simone because that was a really wonderful interview. Um and uh yeah, it was really, really nice. So, um so anyway, it was uh Jeff Lieberman, uh director of the amazing Nina. So The only problem is I don't think that's a long interview, so I'm not sure if I want to do that or not, but I might because I'm thinking about Nina this morning, but I wanted to remind folks that this weekend, um, the Art of the African Diaspora uh, has this artist reception on Saturday at the Richmond Arts Center, I think it starts around Mm. 12, I think? Um, but it's going to go till about five, and you can meet all the artists, the featured artists, as well as the others. And um, at uh, the um, at the Roxy uh, Cinema, they're playing 16 Bars, which is a great film about um, art and corrections. And they're going to have a special guest speaker at the end of the screening, uh, engaging questions around um, around incarceration, around um, you know, trying to keep people out of prison once they're released and opportunities like that and how art is certainly a great way to help people tell their stories, to get it out of them. And a speech from Arrested Development is the artist in residence there at that prison in Virginia. And um, tonight is the, um, wow, it's going to be so awesome, um, um, the um, Playlist Bernard Tyson Playlist at the Oakland Symphony is tonight And I didn't get anybody to ask me for any tickets So gosh I didn't get a chance to give away any sets of tickets And I had two pairs So anyway maybe I'll see you tonight uh, 8 o'clock at the Paramount Theater So I'm going to play now um, this uh, interview with uh, the director of The Amazing Nina Which I hear is on Netflix so you can watch it Uh, Jeff Lieberman, The Amazing Nina is a great film so once again, I just want to congratulate you on such a marvelous, marvelous film uh, about a woman uh, who people just really love her work, but maybe don't know a lot about her life.
1: Yes. Mhm.
2: Yeah. I, I mean,
1: I think that's probably one of the reasons why I wanted to start this project in the first place is because I just felt like there was so much that people didn't know about her and there were so many misconceptions and mm-hmm. so much misinformation that um the project was sort of begging to be told, and I think Nina Sands really wanted to get a deeper sense and understanding of who she
2: was
0: mhm yeah so so tell me tell me how how you came came to this 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 project because I mean you have access to like some phenomenal folks and um i mean you know including you know the blessings of of Sam Wayman um. Uh, Nina Simone's brother who also is a band member and and he acts as a historical consultant to their film so I guess you were able to like fact check things with him make sure that it was you know correct and which is awesome and yeah just talk about sort of how you I mean because you just interview everybody I mean I mean (laughs) I mean a woman is one of your people is like 100 years old I'm like really like <laughs> like wow and it's just and then the way you like frame it I mean I just love you know looking at the home where she grew up the really small quarters and yes. and then looking at I me mean, like her she was like so close to enslavement I mean like really like her grandparents that's heavy yeah. close
1: yeah yeah I mean um yeah where to begin I'm Sam was such an integral part of the whole project, mm-hmm. Nina's brother and band member. And, um, you know, he, he, yeah, he was able to fact check a lot of things and sort of lead me in directions that I could research further. Um, but, you know, I wanted to really gain a perspective of Nina from not just him or not just any one person or mm-hmm. not my own sort of ideas, but really a broad, broad range of people and let them together tell her story, and I could sort of just be the conduit to organize the information and and lay it out. Um, So that was really important to me, to try and reach as many people as I possibly could. Um, And there's even more people that I interviewed who I wasn't able to include, and there were people that um, I had interviews scheduled with who, you know, in the end... I was supposed to interview Maya Angelou and David Frost and all sorts of people who, you know, just didn't, um, it just didn't happen. Um, uh, We lost Maya, you know, like Mm -hmm. a couple months before I was supposed to interview her. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, you know, unfortunate little situations along the way, but um, I was so blessed to have so many people um, come forward and want to share her story and talk about Nina and, it was almost like therapy for a lot of people, uh, just to be able to reflect and analyze and think about Nina now that she's gone and be able to speak freely about her and have a chance to really sort of assess the whole picture of who she was.
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So how long how long did it take you to, to do all of this, you know, all of these interviews? Were you working alone? Did you have a team? Like is is there are there like like who like who was your team <laughs> the yeah. research and the filming because everyone didn't live in the same place and you
1: know.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: um the film took me about three and a half years to make mm-hmm. and uh, that's mainly because I did it almost entirely on my own mm. um I researched it I wrote it I shot it I edited it um I traveled to you know countless numbers of places to track all these people down um just trying to find some of the people that Nina knew or was friends with or performed with was a challenge. You know, a lot of people of that age aren't on Facebook or easily accessible. So it was it was a big um, detective hunt. But it was, it was a lot of fun to, to go find these people and to go to Belgium and Holland and Israel and throughout the States and France to track them down and sort of see what they had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and including, as you mentioned, going to try on North Carolina, where Nina grew up, yes um and standing in the the house that she grew up in and first played the piano, and you know the house still has no plumbing and still has no electricity um and you know, eight children uh grew up in that house, and it 's you know smaller than most new York apartments, mm-hmm. so it 's really a marvel to think that uh the family uh created so much and and was so productive in this in this tiny little house, and made the best of it
2: mhm
0: yeah yeah and then and then I was just like so amazed that the house is there, I mean, like there's yeah. so many houses that you know are humble that have been cleared away for developments and or just to make a parking lot or just because and so that this house is still standing how how did that happen?
1: You know, it's a little bit of an odd thing in, in Tryon. Um, the town is built sort of in a valley, uh, with sort of the main street going through the bottom, the bottom valley, mm-hmm. and um, communities were sort of built on the hills that surrounded um, that street. And obviously, in in time of segregation, the black community lived separately from the white community. Um, but it was not like it was all on one side. Like there were several different black communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if this is odd or unusual, but that sort of segregation still exists somewhat today, at least in the housing in this town. Um, so the house where Nina grew up in when she was Eunice Wayman um, is still primarily in a in the black community or one of the black communities there. And um, you see a lot of that type of house. I mean, some of them are... are Are definitely better and and a lot of them obviously have electricity and plumbing and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Um, but you definitely see not a lot of development going on in those neighborhoods because of the sort of unenforced segregation Um, and fortunately as well there were a couple of community members in the town who have made efforts to preserve the house Mm -hmm. Um, as you saw in the film there's a placard uh, identifying that this is the place where she was born and where she grew up and at a time, it was um, you know a little bit of a museum or cultural uh, center, and now it's it's been on the market for a couple of years, and um, its future is sort of dubious. But hopefully, they'll figure out a way to preserve the house and mm-hmm. and keep the legacy there.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I was looking at, at your bio and I did a quick scan so I'm not an expert on your work. <laughs> but when I was looking at a film that you made about um, um I think it's Black Jews uh in Nigeria, is that did I am I remembering correctly?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Okay, yeah, and I'm thinking and remember in the film, um uh, Nina Simone goes to Nigeria and that just looks like yes. just really wonderful because it's just amazing that you know as as Eunice Wayman um taking classical piano with uh Mrs. Maisie in her town and and then you know being the valedictorian of her class and going to Juilliard for the summer, but then getting denied uh entrance to um uh the um uh, the Curtis Institute, which was a big blow for her, but then her life you know, to another path, she was really conscious of, of, of human rights. I mean, that she would stand up for equal rights for her people before there was any kind of movement, per se, um, mm. you know, with a name. And and with no support necessarily, just this lone young woman who was being, you know, sort of, um, her her talents being highlighted. But she's like, well, if my family can't be in the house, I'm not playing. You know, like am yeah. my, my family being given the respect they're due, like these are my parents. You don't put them in the back of the room. You don't put them in the balcony, you know, like they should be right front and center because this is, this is where I get my, my inspiration from. So I think like, wow, you know, and
2: <laughs> pretty
0: amazing stuff, you know, um. And yeah. Then, yeah. And then all of the movements her life takes her through, and you think, wow, she's just twenty-six. Like when you, I'm so happy you put her age. You know, when she be like, she was twenty-six when she did this. Like she was just thirty. Like really, and she was just forty. Like she lived like a whole lifetime. And you think, think whoa, she's only forty. She's still really young. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Could you talk a little bit most about this? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Most of her career happened before she was forty. I mean. There was such an intense period from 20 to 40, Um, and you know, as as Nina writes in her own book, her activism happened quite gradually, in in sort of an organized way. Um, She stood up to segregation as a child, and that sort of like lays the foundation for her later work and her bold statements um, and the music that she produced that was, you know, rather revolutionary. Um, But she describes her becoming an activist as something that happened gradually over time. And, you know, she was friends with Lorraine Hansberry and Langston Hughes and James Baldwin and, you know, really deep thinkers and and movers in the civil rights um, era. But she wasn't so sure she wanted to get involved and didn't know if she really had a place or, or what she could add um, but those three individuals, in, in addition to other people, really said to her and taught her and guided her um, that she could use her voice for something much more important and, and fundamental, and really guided her in, in becoming more active in the movement.
2: Um,
1: so yeah, that. But that was all at a very early age, and you know, I'm I'm not even 100% sure she knew really what her future was because. She thought she was going to be a classical pianist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she ended up singing in a bar. And um, as the film reveals, you know, that sort of led to all sorts of opportunities and a first jazz album. And, you know, she hated the label jazz because she didn't really think she was a jazz artist. She thought she was just being pigeonholed because she was black. Um, and... Um, you know she was performing in New York and sort of hating the audiences and hating the critics <laughs> and and you know hating the the tunes that she was she thought she was forced to sing and she would try to do creative stuff and people just sort of couldn't quite figure her out and then the civil rights movement really gave her a whole new purpose, and it really um boosted her further into becoming sort of a a whole different musician
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so um. You know, going back to uh, my my mentioning, um, you know, your um, your your film, you know, where you you know you're in Nigeria. I was wondering if yeah. you could maybe, uh, were there some connections there for you? Because I'm sure to make a film like this, um, you know, which is if the title, um, The Amazing Nina Simone. It comes from a fi- uh, an album that she made in 1957, I think, um, and. Uh, um, and I was just wondering sort of you're having you know, being familiar with at least one country <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in in Africa and Nigeria, you know, has like the largest population I think, um yeah. of of any country. It's almost like India, but it's Africa, right? Uh yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and you know, and, and Nigeria is so diverse in so far as the different cultures that are there, the different languages as so well, the different spiritual systems. And and then within a, Nina Simone her life, you know, embodies so many different tributaries because when you think thematically even about her life in this film, you know, we see, wow, you know, we see uh, besides, you know, sort of how does one live an authentic life as a black person in a country where you're not even human, um, to her own personal struggles with mental illness, spousal abuse, um, uh, you know, the The cancer, the polio, you know elder abuse later on um wow, and you know being being um abused by the industry, you know economically um you know just you know sort of trying to. Negotiate all that stuff While still You know if she, When she got on stage And put her hands On the keys Or you know The microphone She started singing It's like all of a sudden Like that voice Came through I'm like whoa Wow So mm. so I hope you didn't Lose the question In all of this Statement <laughs> <it>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well I, I can say the, the Nigeria connection Is a little bit Of a coincidence Oh um, But <clears throat> You know I spent uh, Over a month In Nigeria mm-hmm. Working on this this previous film about the igbo people and um obviously you know I have a long connection to the communities that i met there and have a very uh strong feeling towards nigeria and, and, and the igbo and the igbo jewish communities as well um so i think the the one sort of similarity is i know that nina uh, when she went to Nigeria in the beginning of the 60s uh, with a bunch of other uh, black artists for sort of a cultural exchange with um, Nigerian artists, she really felt a connection to Nigeria, too. She talked about how um, she really felt at home there, um, not just necessarily in Nigeria, but in Africa mm-hmm. itself and uh, connecting to the culture, the people, you know, suddenly not feeling like a minority um, you know, when I was in Nigeria, I sort of had the, uh, you know, an opposite experience because I'm, I'm not black, um, being in Nigeria, sort of, I, I was the minority and I suddenly was put in the shoes of um, feeling different or odd. And it was, it was a very enriching and, and powerful experience for me to know what that's like. And I think that's carried me through on a lot of other uh, uh, things in life. Um, so, you know, I know um maybe it's it's not necessarily a coincidence that we were both there. Um, and maybe that's that's sort of uh, something that that drove me on a subconscious level as well. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think um being in Africa really helped Nina um connect stronger with the culture and you can see that in her dress and her style and her music so much uh, later on in the 1960s when she begins to dress in a, in a much more um african inspired way mm-hmm. and uh and then she later on went to go live in liberia and uh, spent about 2 years there and talked about how she just felt so relaxed there in, in a way that she never felt uh in the united states so
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: that was uh that was an important part of the film that i i wanted to include and um you know i I think a lot of times she's described as having sort of disappeared when she left the United States that she you know abandoned her career or abandoned her life, and you know there's there's a strong argument for needing to go somewhere else like africa and and reconnect with the culture and the people and and uh reassess where she was and what was happening and it you know it's not necessarily a negative thing that uh to take a break from life and to to really connect with with other elements.
0: Mhm. Yeah, what what year was it that that she um she went to to stay in Liberia for a couple of years?
1: She was there from 74 to 76.
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because yeah, I was thinking about um you know how you know after you know the civil rights movement and you know sort of shifting into the uh the black panther um or black power movement um you know people like you know robert moses um they were invited by the um uh, president yeri uh and tanzania to to come there and and live there if they liked you know as guests of of the uh you know of the of the of the you know the nation you know because they were um You know, they were veterans. I mean, they had been at war. I mean, not that the war was over, (laughs) but they were, like, on the front line. And and we see really well, just through the way that you let her music document her life, that this was really emotionally taxing, which showed up in physical ailments, you know, psychological ailments, because... She was like the lone woman. We, we, you know, we meet her as a child. You know, taking piano lessons from this woman who saw her as a human being. You know, first, and with, and and she never had any trouble with her. And I, I just think those stories are so wonderful. You know, she was like, well, you, you know, you not, you know, Eunice would do that, and she would hit their hands because they wouldn't have them right on the piano. That was just so nice. And then, and then we see, you know, sort of how you know because she was a young woman really really young you know and you show pictures of her on these you know these playbills and just how poised and beautiful and elegant she is and she's a kid (laughs) (laughs) it's like wow wow so you know i was just thinking did you ever think about some of those parallels you know as like a veteran you know and having um you know, post traumatic stress kind of stuff, you know, from these traumagenic experiences with and the grief that she wasn't able to like fully be with, you know, as as she was continuing to work and continuing to I don't know, you know, trying to like sort of like trial and error, so to speak. on yeah. um, particularly around relationships and like where was the where was the big mama, you know, where was where was the advisor, you know? Doesn't seem like anybody was there, really, that was like an elder
1: to, like, help right. her. Right. yeah, you know, that's a good point. Um, and, you know, by the end of the 1960s, so many people who were advising her uh, were suddenly gone. You mm-hmm. know, she had lost all her close friends. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry had died of cancer. Langston Hughes had, had died. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were both assassinated. Uh... You know much of her community had sort of dissolved very quickly, and the civil rights movement itself was sort of struggling to find out to find its its place and had they achieved what they wanted to achieve was it over was it done was it you know she really was sort of at odds as to what what to do next mm-hmm. um, and the music was changing you know disco had was coming in, and there was a sort of different mentality towards um Uh, black culture and black music Um, and she was seeing her her rivals really catapult um, past her, Aretha Franklin and uh, so many other artists Roberta Flack was coming in and she sort of couldn't really find her place Um, it was a very devastating time for her Um, and one of the reasons why she did did leave Um, also her marriage had sort of fallen apart too and uh she talked about it being fairly abusive so it was, it was uh a good thing that it perhaps ended but again where where do you go from there mm-hmm. um and also her mental illness was 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 affecting her in a much bigger way at that point uh and that's something i wanted to explore in the film um in addition to so many other things and, and in exploring that, people did talk about, um, you know, a post-traumatic stress disorder from, you know, the tragic events of the civil rights movement with the assassinations and police beatings and FBI surveillance and so many horrible things that people had to go through in order to, to fight that fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she was just exhausted and uh, had to sort of, Come up with a new plan for herself, and that was very difficult. Mhm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how did you? Um, you mentioned um, her autobiography, and I and I guess you're speaking of. Um, I put a spell on you. Is that? Is Correct. It, yeah. 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 Um, that was yeah. one of the sources. Mm-hmm. And what were some of your others? How did you? How did you prepare for this? Because you had to do a lot of work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, I was fortunate to have some of the work done for me, uh, Nadine Cajoda's wrote a book about Nina called Princess Noir mm-hmm. uh, that came out after yes. Nina's book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, she was very meticulous in her research and really laid out um, in a very detailed account of how everything sort of transpired. Uh, so that gave me um, a good basis as to how to um, shape the film and have all the the facts straight. Um and so, Nina sort of gave the sentiment. Nadine sort of gave the detail, and then I went into archives and obviously the interviews to get much more of the, the feeling and the sentiment and uh, sort of analysis of what all this meant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it was it was a big research project. But you know, I was at the Schomburg Center in New York quite a bit. I was at Carnegie Hall's archives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some collectors who had really preserved articles and records and posters and music books, and they were very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so together we sort of amassed this huge collection of Nina uh, history and put it together and, then, you know, the, the goal of the film was to really tell her story in a much more personal and intimate way and, you know, find out you know, it's it's one thing to say that she went to um, Selma and performed at a concert after the march, but that's another thing to hear from her band member who was there, who really can detail how uh, dangerous it was, or how mm-hmm. uh, how scared Nina was, or how important it was to the people who sh- they performed for. Mm-hmm. That that really was the goal was to bring a whole new meaning to her to her career and to the work that she did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because um, I don't know, was that um, was that Mr. Uh, Lyle um. Who I don't remember was that him? Kyle uh, yes.
1: Atkinson, yeah.
0: Um, okay, yeah, yeah, because he wanted to just play the music. He was like, I'm not, I'm not into this politics stuff. This is a paraphrase, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. And is this the place? And I didn't quite understand, it, but I'm like, whoa, the stage was on top of coffins. Was that was that the place? I'm like, how is it that, that coffins are supporting the stage? I'm like, wow. Yeah. Was that? Was that? Yeah, they
1: did a lot of creative things when you know they were denied the use of auditoriums at times and Mm -hmm. they had to perform outside and they they made use of the materials that were given to them
0: yeah but you know you think about the symbolism you know this is a
2: a concert
0: you know sort of uh you know sort of honoring and and supporting the civil rights movement and then you've got coffins underneath the stage and you think about you know, today, you know, we have the Black Lives Matter, right?
2: <laughs> and we got
0: I was like, wow, this is like such symbolism, right? I mean it's like amazing. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, really pretty amazing. And I was wondering, um uh you know, there were there were like a lot of moments that I just really uh really enjoyed. Um really, really loved hearing from the band members. Um, loved hearing from, you know, the people from the town who, who knew her, you know her friends. I mean, that was awesome, you know. Particularly uh, Emma Louise Hamilton. Like she, she, she was just real sweet. And then her brothers, like John Irvin Wayman and Sam, of course, and and Carol Carol Wayman. You know, just talking about, you know, how she was so special to her dad because he had to give up performing to marry her mother who was a minister and I'm like, Well, he really loved her <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, That's for sure. yeah, for you, you know, as as a director, um, you know, what are some of the oh, and then also Al uh Shacklin, I mean, his yes. reflection was like, Wow and and just like they were like Friends all the way to the end, and you know, his memories, and then Henry Young that was interesting, um, you know, how he didn't know what he was getting into, you know, for that concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, what are some of your, um, you know, so as you were making the film, you know, it was a big project, and hopefully, you know, when your film is out in December, because I know people can order it in advance, um, you know, there'll be like outtakes, you know, for some of the material that didn't make it, because I'm sure. You, there, there must have been like some serious choices because you have a whole lot more yeah. material than you have in film. You probably could do a whole lot more films or maybe even, who knows, uh, a short uh, TV <laughs> mini miniseries.
2: <laughs> <need to> <laughs> but what are
0: some of your like, you know, takeaways as a director? It's like, oh my God, I'm so happy I made this film because.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned the, the woman I interviewed who's 100 years old um that was that was a really great moment for me to be able to talk to her um because sometimes you know in these interviews there's revelations that you don't even realize you know you think you know the whole story and you think you know what people are going to say and then you hear things and you're like oh my god that like takes us in a whole other direction um and with her um her husband was Nina's tutor um after Nina was rejected from the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, and he sort of taught, trained her a bit more in the hopes of maybe that she would do some more studying or try and apply again to a, maybe Curtis or another school. Um, so I was interviewing her for sort of her memories of what her husband had told her, and, and you know whether Nina was, had come by the apartment or, or what. Um, and I learned through interviewing her that she was also a professor at Curtis. The last fifty odd years, uh, including the year that Nina auditioned, um, so uh, you know, and, and she was a piano teacher. So I said to her, "Well, you must have been in Nina's audition um, when when she applied." And you know, this is a major moment in Nina's life. She always said that she didn't get into Curtis, and she was denied this opportunity to become a classical pianist and that was what she had trained for her whole life and she really thought race was to blame and here was the woman who I didn't even realize who may have um, been in that audition and you know how many young black women were auditioning in the 1950s at the Curtis Institute probably very very few
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: so she she couldn't remember you know uh, having been in that audition uh, and a lot of times the auditions were blind, like they they wouldn't see the student perform. Um, so, you know, it's, it's possible that she did hear her perform, but wasn't aware of it. But, um, you know, it's little moments like that, and it, it gave her and the Curtis Institute also an opportunity to correct the record and, and 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 explain how difficult it was to get into Curtis in general, but also that year, yeah. Um, you know, Nina was one of 100 students who auditioned for three open spots. Um, that's not something I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm, that's something I'm not even sure Nina knew. Um, and that might have made her feel a little bit better knowing that the odds were really against her and every other student who applied. Um, not that race wasn't a factor, too, but, you know, there were other factors, including gender as well, as I explained in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was an interesting moment that really made me feel like I was bringing the story to a whole other level. Um, I was also really pleased to interview uh, Marie Christine Dunham-Pratt, yeah. who's um, the daughter of Catherine Dunham, the famous choreographer, uh, who explained uh, the relationship that Nina and her had together and this very deep and loving relationship. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people knew of Nina's um sexuality that had uh, spanned both men and women and she was just so free and open. Um and it was it's nice to be able to reveal that side to her, um, and, you know, open the film up to more more of her fans and, and ways to connect her and um and as Marie Christine sort of explains, it was just so difficult to love Nina because she was such a big personality and she was uh both as a performer and and with her illness, she was just very difficult to, to sort of contain, and it was it was one of the the beautiful and troubling things about her life. Mhm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So in <laughs> Horace Hot and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Gloria Caldwell a lot. That's another favorite of mine mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Um, the the couple who wrote uh, Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood which is one of Nina's iconic songs and you know a lot of people think it's a uh, a reference to the civil rights movement and as they explain you know the song was written after they had a little <laughs> marital dispute about moving to the suburbs so it's little revelations like that that are kind of fascinating to me mhm
0: mhm yeah and and they're so fun i mean you know the 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 photograph you know in the um uh, the press um, program for the film shows them, you know, really s- smiling, but they just seem like they just have such, so, such warmth and, and, and just, they're just so fun, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just nice watching them as a couple, you know, talk and finish yeah. each other spots and stuff, you know. Yeah. Beautiful,
2: right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really yeah. funny. hmm uh, Yeah.
0: And then even, um, you know, um, you know, Miss Arthur, Miss Martha Flowers, you know, the opera singer, um, You know, talking about um, Nina Simone and, and, you know, um, and her admiration, um, as well as, you know, uh, um, Eric uh, Burden speaking about the animals and how, you know, they did a, they covered one of her songs. And she was like, really? She wasn't happy with that. But then he said, he tried to flip it. Well, you know, now, you know, Europe Europe knows you. So come on now and do a tour. (laughs) <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then folks that, you know, I know like, you know, um Nikki Giovanni, you know, wonderful, iconic, you know, poet, revolutionary at that, um, you know, uh, American poet but black American poet and, and her comments are just like awesome. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah and
1: I was so fortunate to be able to meet her and interview her, and she knew Nina,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so she could talk about Nina in a way that was both um, personal and objective,
2: mm-hmm. because,
1: you know, as she's sort of a cultural critic as well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, could also frame, you know, things in the civil rights movement and uh, sort of the Harlem intelligentsia mm-hmm. for me uh, in a way that was really helpful, too,
2: because... Mm-hmm
1: uh, everything that I, all of Nina's story, I wanted to sort of frame in, uh, the, the context of the larger, uh, movement of what was going on in the sixties and fifties and sixties. So not just the civil rights movement, but jazz and, and, and music and black culture. So, mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was great to have her contributions. It was very, very appreciative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, um, uh you know nikki giovanni she's you know she's a professor um she's a cancer survivor and um and and she you know um she comes from you know humble beginnings uh you yeah. know we 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 hear you know about in some of her early poetry and then just thinking more recently um you know around here in in the pacific um uh northwest uh you know the shooting but you know she was I don't know if she's still faculty there, but at that school where there was, um, I think someone sent an email, and then there was a shooting because she was she was out here yeah, doing Virginia a book Tech. release. Yes, yes, Virginia Tech. Right? Yeah. hmm Yeah, yeah, and and that's, you know like so, you know we're not just like watching this beautiful this film, beautiful film about a beautiful spirit, and a beautiful woman. Um, that's like, oh, you know, this is historic, even though it's you know two thousand and fifteen release, blah, blah blah, and you think no this is this is totally contemporary, you know this is like right now, and then you know when you end the film, you know we're talking about freedom again, you know the whole film, one of the themes is certainly freedom, you know, um you know literal freedom as well as spiritual freedom and all the other kind of freedoms that should go along with human rights and and Absolutely. she talks yeah yeah she talks about how freedom is no fear you know that's just one aspect of freedom you think fear you know is real yeah. palpable you know in our country because you know we have a country that's very violent and it's based on arms you know i'll 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 have so many arms that you won't even think about touching us, because you'll be afraid of what my response is going to be, as opposed to love, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. When Nina sang, um, you know, after Martin Luther King's assassination, Mm -hmm. um, as I talk about in the film, like three or four days later, she performs the first time the song Why the King of Love is Dead, Mm -hmm. and um, I specifically referenced one line in the song that... um, uh, she says, "You know, will the murders ever cease? Are we are they men or are they beasts?" And um, you know, it, uh, I can't think of anything more contemporary than than that line. It's like the murders haven't ceased. You know, 50 years later, um, we're still gunning each other down. Uh, whether it's police violence against you know a lot of people, or it's people murdering each other, or the Virginia Tech shooting, or mm-hmm. cinema shootings. I mean, it just sort of is endless. Um so uh and and she goes on to say, you know, did Martin Luther King just die in vain? And you almost wanna say yes, you know, he did die in vain. It's like um we lost him for the, the silliest, most um ridiculous reason because someone disagreed with him. Okay. And, you know, there's never a reason to kill someone. Okay. And we didn't we didn't learn the lesson of violence then and we still haven't learned it. So as Nikki Giovanni says, you know, now the, the the mass shootings happen so regularly now that it's, you know, you used to say in reaction, oh, was it a man? Was it a woman? You know, how many people died? What was it? And it's just sort of like, oh, okay, another one. We sort of are getting numb to it almost.
2: hmm
0: Yeah, yeah, because um, when I uh, – because I teach at a community college, and when I – after this, the shooting happened in, um. Uh, see, was it Washington State or Oregon, the more recent one at the community college?
2: Uh,
1: In Oregon, I think. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I was like, okay, well, what's going to be our security plan now? And I was like, nobody was even thinking. I'm like, okay, well, this is close to home. We work at a community college in California. It's like right down the road, if you think about the coast. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. like, so, and I was like... Few people not even like even concerned a little bit, because I would always think, well, I don't teach in you know uh, the public school, so I'm good, right? right. <laughs> it's like, and I don't teach in the university, so I'm good, right? And I'm like, and no. like, oh no, this None is. None
1: of us are immune.
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this kid was like 20, and and he, this was his teacher, and I'm like, oh my goodness gracious,
2: this is yeah. terrible.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So. <laughs> You know,
1: and and the Black Black Lives Matter campaign is, you know, someone asked me recently, in an interview, um, why is Nina Simone more relevant today than she was 50 years ago, mm-hmm. or 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 10 years ago? And I I said to them, it's it's not that she's more relevant. You know, these these things have been happening um, for the last 50 years and and before that, and definitely beyond that into slavery. It's just mm-hmm. that we're so much more conscious of it now with technology and, you know, personal cameras and social media that, um, you know, it's really become, uh, people who are sort of controlling the message as opposed to media and saying, you know, we're not going to stand for, for, for violence against people, I guess, especially the black community, uh, any longer. Um, and that's what Nina was saying, you know, with Mississippi Goddamn 50 mm-hmm. years ago, um, uh, so it's not that she's more relevant today. She's just sort of becoming recognized as someone who was saying this decades ago, and and we're finally sort of waking up to
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, this notion. And hopefully things will change. You know, get it seen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, people definitely need to um, to get out and see. You know, uh, you know the amazing Nina Simone um, because this is. I mean. Just the lessons there. We just look at her life, and just the whole how her, you know, her ex-husband told her when, you know, after um, I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr was killed, I believe that's the story and, you know, she was looking for a gun. And it's like well, you don't even know how to shoot a gun. You know, you're you know, what you do is you're an artist. <laughs> so yes. you know, write a song or something and so then, you know, we get Mississippi goddamn you know, like Yeah yeah. In
1: reaction yeah. Mm-hmm. in reaction to the bombing at the Birmingham Oh Church.
0: right, right, yeah, the four little yeah. girls being killed. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah.
1: then Ever's assassination mm-hmm. too. She was mm-hmm. she said that was the match that lit the flame and then mm-hmm. And then she was just so outraged by the the bombing that killed children,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. and
1: um, that really that really developed into a whole new persona for her. I mean, she was already sort of doing some some songs that were a little more challenging, but Mississippi Goddamn really changed her whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned, Lyle Atkinson, who was her bassist for many years, especially mm-hmm. at that time, um, felt uncomfortable uh, performing protest songs on the stage. But like Nina, he was also a classically trained musician
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he really took his art quite seriously and, you know, thought that there was a place for politics and there was a place for music. Um, but, you know, fortunately for us, Nina didn't agree and she really um, took to the stage at Carnegie Hall and said those two words, Mississippi Goddamn, in front of a mostly white audience in 1963. Um and, uh, you know, was, took a big, bold chance in in saying those words. And fortunately, the crowd was, you can hear in the live recording, the crowd was nervously laughing, but was also on her side. And it was a New York audience who was equally, I assume, was equally outraged by the images coming out of Mississippi and Alabama. and um, But that really became a whole new persona for her, which which really emboldens people today.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know who said it, but, um, uh, one of the, uh, people you, you interview, um, mentioned how no one was off the hook for black people. And, uh, and then, um, and then the person mentions uh, you know, George Zimmerman and the durability of a song and, you know, with regards to, you know, Trayvon Martin's killer, you know, being left off the hook. And and then, um, I think within the sec- same section maybe, uh talk about the song Private Jenny and how you know this person was, um, you know, in the theater with I think a, a Catholic priest or something
2: yeah. <laughs> and she was singing
0: a song and she got off stage and um Yeah, and it just seemed like she was just like, when she was, you know, in her prime, you know, you, like, didn't sit too close to the stage, but then if you sat in the back of the room and you didn't do something right, uh, she still might call you out, which is like, whoa, this is so cool, like, no, you know, when she was singing in the beginning, you know, at, at the bar, they they weren't serving drinks, you know, when she was performing. I mean, she had like a, so, a whole etiquette. She taught people about how to listen and how to appreciate the work of an artist. And she's like, you know, this is early in her career, you know, that carries yeah. forward into now. Um, you know, people like, no, I mean, when people mention it now, I haven't heard anyone mention how Nina Simone was one of the first if not the first prominent artist that was asking, not demanding, I should say, that the public respect the work. And I just really like how over and over again – you know, you would give examples of this to the point where, you know, if they weren't getting it, that she would just leave the stage. And then, you yeah. know, then we have Miles Davis turning his back to the stage. and And then the whole thing around, you know, men getting some, you know, certain types of respect that women don't get, you know, the whole male-female sexism on top of the colorism. You know That yeah. comes into it So it's like It's like a lot of levels And then you Then you got racism too Like really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the The fortunate I, uh, You know We don't I'll never know this for sure But the fortunate thing about uh, Nina's origins As a classical pianist mm-hmm. Was that there was just A certain level um, Of respect That a classical pianist Sort mm-hmm. of demands mm-hmm. Or is given from the beginning um, you would never go to Carnegie Hall and um, and sit and listen to Yo Yo Ma play and and have a conversation with the person next next to you. It just would never happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, Nina, despite the fact that she knew she was performing in bars and people were drinking and 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 relaxing, she still demanded the, uh, for respect and silence and. Um, you know, even though she was in a little bar in Atlantic City, she envisioned herself on stage at a concert hall, and thought, you know, if I'm going to sit here and play the piano and sing, you better just at least give me the respect of listening. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: And that carried her through her her whole career. Um, and I think I think it is her classical training that really forced her to to see the difference. Uh, not the difference, but the way an audience should behave. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was she was chastised in the press for, you know, walking out or scolding an audience or, you know, the, the press sort of loved the fact that she acted in ways that they didn't uh, expect. Um, but there was, you know, s- some significant sort of racial bias there, too. You know, black women just didn't uh, behave in that way in public uh, in the 60s, from what I understand. And so here was someone who was defying, you know, the sort of the code and saying, no, you know, I am I'm demand the same respect that, you know, Miles Davis gets or a white woman or a white male or anyone. I'm just a musician um, singing my craft and I demand some respect if, if I'm going to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: got a commander for that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and going back to you know, to Mississippi, goddamn and and you know, and the bombing of, of the uh of the, the church, you know, um, where these young women uh children actually were killed and others, you know, wounded and maimed and just just horrific and the horrific part of it was that it was intentional. You know, that the timing of it I hadn't realized that, um I'm trying to think. What bill? A bill had just been signed by President Kennedy.
1: When and then, the, is that correct? Yeah, he yeah he introduced a civil rights bill, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was right before uh, Medgar Evers was assassinated,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and then shortly after it was the Birmingham church bombing. Mm-hmm. So that was all '63, which was sort of a big pivotal year, um, where nothing. I mean, small steps were being achieved, but there was sort of more frustration and more violence than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that just sort of built and built, and and, and Nina and other people were sort of feeling that, that frustration.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. So, so then, when when President Kennedy was killed, then that's when Johnson signed it two years later. But I mean, like goodness gracious, it's not even a bill. He was just introducing it, and it wasn't even signed. And then, you know, they blow up a church. You know, like what? I mean, good yeah. grief. I mean, that's like that shows the intensity of the period, you know, and how violent and how uh, at risk. You know she was for speaking out and being the person she was along with other artists and you know, and culture workers, you know, for being the people they are. And then you think about, you know, we're not even talking necessarily about Freedom Summer. And then and then Martin Luther King Jr.'s, you know, March on Washington is in the film. And, I mean, it's just a real wonderful document that you have pulled together. It's just like, oh, my goodness. Like, people definitely oh, want to you. put this in their library. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just fantastic. And I just wonder, you know, you had, like, this big opening in New York with a Art exhibit that looked like, oh my God, I wish I had time to come to New York. So, uh, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: yeah, that's this Thursday
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and running through the weekend. And it's uh, the artwork that's come in is so tremendous and so beautiful. And I really wanted to share the stage with other artists and let them pay tribute to Nina and, um, you know, sort of make it more than just a film and make it a, a real big tribute to Nina. She really is. I think, overlooked and deserves the attention and respect that, um, that that I don't think she ever truly, truly got. And, um, you know, when you talk about the civil rights movement, you know, certain names, but hers doesn't come up as often. When you talk about jazz, you, there's a lot of names that pop into mind, and, and I don't think Nina really uh, gets the love and attention she deserves. And I know so many people feel so passionate about her that... Um, I knew that calling for an art exhibit that artists would pop up immediately and, and they certainly have and there's so many beautiful portraits of her and so many different uh, ways of her being and her persona and her different looks and her different music and uh, it's going to be really, really beautiful uh, when it opens on Thursday and, mm-hmm. and uh, plays at the weekend. Yeah.
0: So, do you think you might? I mean, I don't know how many artists. How many artists um, are are part of the exhibition?
1: There's um, somewhere between forty and fifty. Okay. And um, I I say that I say that unspecific because there's still a few art pieces trickling in that I haven't quite got here. But mm-hmm. I think there's about forty that have arrived, um, and they represent fourteen different countries. Uh, including you know artists from across the United States, but also Sweden and Austria and Thailand and Argentina and Brazil um, just it really shows you how far the scope of Nina travels i mean she 's so loved in so many places uh, that you know it's the artists sort of represent you know how far uh, how far she stretched.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And and so tell us about the venue and um and do you think you might come up with a catalog um sort of just documenting um you know this exhibit and maybe some of the tour cuz the tour is going to take you across the country but um is are, is it, it going to take you overseas as well since you know it's not just America that is represented in her relationship to um you know to her fans and to her collaborators are you going to be going overseas with the film and
1: yeah there's definitely some possibilities of um of showing the film uh overseas um and i as as you were asking about the art exhibit i'd really like to uh make it available as a book mm. um you know for people to to see all the different portraits all together uh and and maybe even the show will travel to to other cities in the states if we can bring the artwork to other places or um if everything doesn't sell, <laughs> then maybe we can uh, have the artists create another version for, you know, another city. Um, but the film is opening in New York and L.A. Uh, on the 16th, and then it opens in another 20-ish cities on the 23rd mm-hmm. um, across the country. And, uh, and then in addition to that, there's several cities that are doing one-night showings, Um you know, all the all the dates and locations are at amazingnina.com, but it's really been nice to get a, this tremendous response of uh, of um, from the theaters, mm-hmm. and we're we're in a lot of AMC theaters and a lot of Sundance cinemas, so we're really covering the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. So so the venue where where the art exhibit is, um, uh, it sounds um, like it's multiple multiple layer, levels. I mean like. it's Did I I read it? Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an art gallery on New York's Lower East Side. um, That's sort of a pop-up event space. Um, So we're going to have a blank canvas to really create uh, whatever suits us best. Um, But the portraits will be up on the walls. There's um, one artist who's made a... uh, uh, a costume um mm. that's going to be on a model and uh, it's her vision of nina in the future what nina would wear in the future oh. um <laughs> so it's really quite fascinating looking uh, and she's she does beaded work so it's it's all beaded
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um there's a sculpture a bronze sculpture like a, almost like a bust like you'd see on top of the piano mm-hmm. um so Nina's finally going to have her place alongside Mozart and Bach and Beethoven Mm -hmm. the the artists that she studied Uh, what else there's a lot of beautiful portraits there's going to be a DJ Um, as you said there's two levels so some of the artwork will be upstairs some will be downstairs there's going to be an artist doing a live painting at the opening reception so Mm -hmm. people will be able to watch him paint Nina Um, it's really going to be a very cool evening and uh, it's the night before the film opens So it's it's also a chance for us to celebrate And get together and talk about Nina And listen to her music And Nina's brother Sam Wayman Is going to be there As well as some of the other people from the film uh, I'll be there It'll be a chance to really You know uh, Celebrate her and, and just hang out together And and then anticipate the film the next night
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah I was looking at the really nice one that's made out of words, um, you know, by Eric Den uh, Bregen. His piece, it looks really, really um, interesting. Um, you know, he has, you know, these words in, you know, making her face digitally. Uh-huh. That's really, like, really awesome. <laughs> it's wild, right? Yeah, yeah, some yeah these, exactly. Some of
1: them are really creative.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, and uh, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time because I just have um, two more questions. One has to sure. do with... Um, I really like how um you know in the film it shows how you know she's honored you know when when she passed you know musically by those who have younger artists who have actually you know um uh who perform her work now and and you have um let's see where are my notes uh <laughs> uh you have um, I know John Legend is one of the yes. one of the artists and uh yeah quite Lizzie. a few
1: mm-hmm,
0: yes mhm
2: Kanye West, um, Jennifer
1: Hudson, Mm -hmm. Sandy Lauper, so many people have covered Nina uh, and just really connect with how authentic she is and was. Um, So I, I wanted to sort of, you know, bring Nina up to contemporary times, too, and sort of show that, you know, she wasn't just a singer that has a catalog from the past. She's being reinterpreted all the time and I'm sure many of your listeners hear Nina on the radio and they get into a taxi cab and a restaurant and um she's everywhere. She's really hasn't lost her cultural relevance at all. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and here here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, um, I don't know if you know Kim Nally, she actually um uh had wrote a play, uh called I put a spell on you and and she performs it and uh tells the tells, you know, um, you know, Nina Simone's story. And it's just, it's really, really lovely as well as the, uh, um, you know, the CD of, of her work. And, and she would do, um uh, when she had a club, uh, in San Francisco called Jazz at Pearls, um, she would do these, uh, legendary divas show where she would highlight, you know, sort of these, these women like Nina Simone and, and her contemporaries, um that that might not be as well known, uh, you know, in the work. And and so I was just thinking about um uh when you when you show Nina Simone in uh in concert, you know, on tour with Odetta, uh Mary McCaba and herself, you know, Three Women for Freedom, I'm like, whoa yeah. And I think she was sixty when she was doing the tour and it just like looks so powerful. That's that's one of my favorite moments uh in the oh. film as well. But, um, do, do Don't you, you wish
1: you were at that concert?
0: Uh, yeah. Me <laughs> too.
1: <laughs> and that was Italy of all places. You know, mm-hmm. how funny that like, Odetta, Miriam McCabe, and Nina Simone um, were united in, in Italy. I mean, it's wonderful that Italy figured that out and was able to do it. <laughs> um, and I, I spoke to the the uh, the producer of the concert, and he was... Brilliant! Have have come up with the concept,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but how how bizarre that it was, you know, it never made it to the states or London, Paris, you know. Those I think people would have killed to see that show.
0: Mhm. Oh yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. So did you ever see Nina Simone uh, perform? And if so, how many different times? <laughs>
1: um, I did once, and I regret not having seen her twice because uh, the first time that I. I uh, had the opportunity, I had asked a friend if she wanted to go and we talked about it and then just never really followed through on it. Um, but the second time, I uh, was in 2000 at the Beacon Theater in New York City mm-hmm. and uh, I couldn't find anyone at that time who knew, who I knew, who knew Nina Simone, who wanted to see her. Yeah. But I said to myself, I just have to make sure I take this opportunity now and um It was already at a point when Nina might not have been. uh, It might not have been the best idea for Nina to have been performing. Um, If anyone saw those later years, um, it was more to see Nina herself than for any great music or great performance. Um, But she was a character. I mean, you can't. She put on a great show, but, you know, of course, she was very late, as she always was. (laughs) Um, She was sort of. In a mood, um, but she was highly entertaining and, and the crowd loved her. And someone shouted out to her, uh, Welcome home, Nina. And she said, This is my home. Africa is my home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> she,
1: was, she was true to herself. And
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: that was only three years before she passed away. So mm-hmm. it was really one of the very last concerts. And uh, I was so, so pleased of, to have been there.
2: Mhm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I got a chance to see her when she came. I think it was Davies Symphony Hall in San Francisco. And um, it was it was sold out, but I got my ticket, you know, early enough. And it, she could have sat there and not said a word.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was all right with that because, you know, she, like, um, you know, a really wonderful way that Miss um, um, uh, Dunham, um, you know, um, speaks about her um, you know she says that you know because she has such a wonderful and varied body of work you don't ever have to miss her because she's here in her work and one could say that art was her religion Um, you don't hear about other things you hear about you see and you hear in her her music her her, you know her values her spirituality I mean it all comes out there you know
1: yeah Mm mm-hmm it's, it's very funny because um, the day that um, Marie-Christine Dunham-Pratt and I met mm-hmm. uh, in Paris to talk about whether she would be part of the film or not, uh, we were in a restaurant and it, it took some... She was very private about her relationship with Nina. I wasn't sure she necessarily wanted to like talk about it. Um, but we were sitting in a restaurant having lunch and I could hear on the, the, radio, uh, the restaurant's music system that they were playing Ella and Billy and Sarah Vaughan, and And um, I was just waiting for Nina to come on and sort of make herself known that she was aware that we were, you know, talking about her or, or planning this interview. Mm-hmm. And we must have sat there for a good three, four hours and she, she didn't come on once. Oh. And just as we were about to leave, I went down to the bathroom and, um, and just as I entered the bathroom and was alone by myself in there, Nina came on <laughs> and sort of made herself known that, you know, she was she was listening, she was there, she was aware. Um, <laughs> and I hear people tell me, you know, similar experiences all the time, like that they were feeling so something and then they get into a taxi and there's Nina
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, or just comes on the radio at the right moment or your phone pops up with a song and it's Nina you know mm-hmm. it's,
0: it's quite magical quite special oh yeah yeah the ancestor realm is is certainly certainly real and some, yes. yeah yeah it's like you know people might dismiss it but it's like oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're certainly alive and, and you know and and you know, you know thinking about you know what you know about Nina's life you know from your research yeah. and, and your talking to her friends and loved ones um Yeah, I mean, definitely she's present. I mean, you know, some people might like, you know, cross over over into the other realm and be a quiet presence, but I'm sure she's like, you know, much more noisy (laughs) (laughs) than she was when she was tied to the flesh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Would you have, do you know Kim Nally's work? Uh, Because if you don't, I'll I'll send send you information about her. I think you'd like her.
1: Yeah, please do. I don't, I don't know her work, but okay.
0: I'd love to connect with her. Sure, sure. And then lastly, I was wondering. You know, I just love, you know, sort of. I mean, you follow. We we get to know Nina uh, Simone from, you know, her early years all the way to, you know, her final years. And and you have this really loving team of young people that just loved her. I mean, there was, you know, the the live wire that was not good. But then there were the there were the young people there in her life that were were sort of protecting her, you know, in the midst yeah. of that. And, you know, talking about, you know, Juanita, uh the hairstylist and uh Javier who was her assistant and, and Sharon, uh, who was the makeup artist. Could you just talk a little bit about just sort of their, their loving kindness and care of her and and you know and, and how that interview went for you, because I bet you probably got choked up too. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah I mean um that was an important part of the story for me was to talk about uh Nina's final years, which were both good and bad mm-hmm. and um you know she she sort of finally found a little bit of peace uh in the south of France, and she had a proper house and uh, after years of sort of you know not necessarily being homeless but not necessarily being in one place with a lot of stability um she was set up in this house and she had a good team of people, um, sort of managing everything for her, uh, including her career, including her medication, including her, um, daily, daily life and enjoyment and comfort. Um, and you could see that, um, from the three people that you mentioned, all who really loved and adored Nina and, uh, had the the difficult and sometimes impossible task of caring for her, um, they really tried as much as they could to keep things in a normal uh sane way for her and uh she was not an easy person to control and um you know they did their best to to, to give her what she needed and and make her life pleasant and and um uh, spent a lot of time reminiscing with her about uh better years and you know what was going on in the 60s and really just connecting with her. And I think for all three of them, it, it may be, you know, some of the best moments they've had in their lives. And to be able to talk about it all these years later and talk about it on film and be part of the Nina Simone legacy was really a nice gift to them. Um, and that's something I just gave away, you know, carelessly, but I I really wanted to hear from them what Nina's last years were like and, and. I think people kind of wonder what happens to someone after the lights go off and, and the audience goes away and what, what happens next. Um, so those, those three interviews, um, were really key to the film and I'm, I'm really glad to include them and, and have them detail everything, uh, that, that happened in those last years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So,
0: um, at the New York screening, um, this week, uh um, few days. Um, who from all of these people that you interviewed and there's like quite a few. I don't know if you know the number of people that you interviewed all the time of your Like how many people
1: did you talk to? Like, I um I think I interviewed about eighty people
2: oh. total. <laughs> and I
1: I think um maybe fifty are in the final film. Okay. Um hmm. yeah, I think that's roughly the number. 30 30 people who didn't make the film sound feather high, so I might be off a little bit, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's somewhere in that range.
2: Okay.
0: So of the 80 folks that are still on this side of the river, uh, who's going to show up? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um,
1: Well, uh, in New York on Friday, uh, we're going to, you know, for the premiere, we're going to have a talk back after the film, so Mm -hmm. people can ask questions like you're doing, um, and I'll be there. And Sam Wayman, Nina's brother, will be there. Mm. Um, Leopoldo Fleming, who was in Nina's band for many, many years as a percussionist, mm-hmm. will be there. Um, Debbie Alexander, who uh, is the daughter, uh, of the gentleman who owned the bar in Atlantic City where mm. Nina Simone was, the you know, born. Not Eunice Wayman, but Nina Simone was born. <laughs> um, she's going to be there. Uh, Judy Gale Krasno, who was in the film. Uh, who's the daughter of uh, the producer who uh, produced many of Nina's first albums. She's going to be there
2: uh, in L.A.
1: The following week, we're going to do some talkbacks, too. And um, uh, some of the people who uh, are in the film will be there, including Stu Phillips, who produced a few of Nina's albums, Juanita Bougere, uh, who was Nina's uh, assistant and hairstylist, Mm-hmm. in her last years. Um, Tom Schnabel, who interviewed Nina on several occasions and is a popular uh, radio host on KCRW in Los Angeles. Mm.
2: He's still there. So, yeah. Wow, nice.
1: Yeah. Um, Billy Vera, who didn't necessarily know Nina, but produced a lot of the compilation albums mm-hmm. uh, that came okay. out later. And, you know, that's the way I discovered Nina was through one of these albums or CDs that were put out in the 90s mm-hmm. that mishmashed all the music um, <laughs> together, but, you know, it was sort of best of albums. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and mm-hmm. we'll be in, uh, in Berkeley um, the following week on October. The film opens on October 23rd in Berkeley, uh, but I'll be there on the 24th, mm-hmm. and then in Sebastopol on the 25th. Um and possibly at a few other it's playing also at the Lark Theatre and the uh in Saint Helena at uh Cameo Cinema. Yeah. So we're doing quite a bit in the Bay Area. Yeah. So will
0: um uh her brother Sam Wayman be with you, um, at the Berkeley screening on the twenty
1: fourth? He's not coming to California but he's sort of gonna man things from New York. Okay. Um And Nina's eldest brother, John Irvin Wayman, Mm -hmm. uh, he lives in the Sacramento area. He does. So we're gonna, yeah.
0: Oh my goodness! Wow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we're gonna see if we can get him to uh, to come out to one of the screenings in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. He's uh, he's in the nineties, so
2: (laughs) I have to figure out (laughs) (laughs) what's possible.
0: Oh, you can always Skype him in. I've been to. Screenings where the talk back was via Skype, so that makes it easier for uh-huh. the person that might not be able to easily get to the theater.
2: Uh
1: huh.
0: See, so I want to consider that.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Cause that'd be great. I mean, to get them that yeah. way, if not at all, that'd be super. Oh, yeah. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, and yeah. and her daughter, um, uh, Lisa, who who calls herself Simone, um, you know, in you know, on stage. Um, she didn't want to be interviewed and I, and I know you know she has this other film which is a totally another another direction um yes you know um does she does she um what do you call it um uh what does she say about your film does she um
1: give it her support or there's no yeah i think she she sent me an email this past week offering her congratulations and was very positive about what I had achieved
2: okay.
1: um so much on my own mm-hmm. uh but yeah as you mentioned, she had um her own film that she was uh she decided to do and um i think you know tells a different story of Nina that um I think both films complement each other, that they, you know, tell different stories and different sides of Nina, Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, yeah, I sort of uh, feel like she's, she had her opportunity to say, uh, tell her side of the story, Mm -hmm. and uh, I sort of was interested in telling a a different side of the story, so. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it works together nicely.
2: Mm
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, once again, um, you know, congratulations on on such a wonderful document. Um, the amazing Nina Simone. It's like wow, it is really fantastic. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful opening. Uh, you know, national opening in um, in in New York uh, this week. And uh, yeah, it's just simply fantastic.
1: Thank you, thank you, and thank you for letting people know about the film. It's really. It's really a one-man, not one-man band, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> it feels that way. And mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of a word of mouth, um, you know, and relying on people to spread the word. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, people can check AmazingNina.com to see where the film is playing near them. Mm-hmm. Um, or on social media, or on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, the film hopefully will be coming to cities
2: wherever people are listening. hmm yeah certainly certainly um